Welcome to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Jonathan Pritchard. Jonathan's work focuses on leveraging the power of applied psychology, showmanship, and moxie to achieve impossible results for his clients. For over 20 years, he's traveled the world as a mentalist, entertaining audiences of all kinds. He's appeared on national TV, on the Strip in Vegas, and even did a three-week tour overseas to entertain the U.S. troops. Today, he takes those skills and applies them at trade shows, keynotes, or any of the other four training seminars that he runs for Fortune 500 clients to improve their sales and negotiation skills. In addition to the training projects, he also helps artists tokenize their work and create NFTs. He's also got a podcast, The Elite University. So Jonathan, super excited to have you on the show today. Dude, thank you very much. That was a, an amazing intro. I, I better live up to it. <laughs> got to set the bar high, right? Um, so tell me first, what is a mentalist? A mentalist is a kind of entertainer that specializes in mind reading tricks. So just like you've got magicians that can specialize in card tricks or coin tricks or big stage illusions, mentalists are a flavor magician that specialize in making it look like they can read minds, predict the future, any of those kind of things that would fall under the psychic umbrella. But I don't claim to have psychic skills. It's all like, like you said, applied psychology, showmanship, and moxie, just understanding how people think so that you can help them think what you want them to think all for entertainment purposes. I, I do not use my powers for evil. How did you originally even venture into this whole world? By starting being interested in magic tricks. When I was a kid, my dad got me a magic kit and he thought it would just be a, a toy I threw away in a week, something like that. But then a year later, I'm still doing tricks every single day. And every, every beginner's magic book has, well, these are the card tricks. These are the coin tricks. Here's some rope tricks. Oh yeah, here's some mind reading tricks and some illusions you can build at home out of a shoebox. I'm like, wait, go back one. Because the, the mind reading tricks were just the most interesting to me. I still use playing cards quite often because they're a really cool representation of chaos and chance and, and randomness, but it's working with people's minds that was always the most interesting to me. So I did a little bit of everything, but it was the mentalism stuff that really piqued my interest. So what did you sort of learn in terms of, uh, the ability to, to read minds. I mean, what, what goes into that and how did you sort of leverage your, your skills in, in order to be able to do that? There's the direct skill that is being, that I'm claiming to do to influence somebody or to control their choices or read their minds. That is the stated skill. The meta skill is influence and communication skills. 
that's really at the heart of everything because I can't really read minds, but I'm such a good communicator that the logical conclusion for my audiences is the only answer for that is if he's actually got the mojo, right? So the literal skill is a lot different than the experiential skill that people think I'm doing. So it's kind of like, if I have a particular routine that looks like I'm influencing somebody's decisions, the actual skill might be that I'm, I'm plotting out every single possibility and working through a flowchart of options that always lands in the same spot. So that is a really, really complicated process to make it look like nothing's going on. So everybody thinks that, oh, he's really good at reading micromuscular facial expressions. And based on that, he's influencing the spectator. But it's at a much deeper level of understanding communication theory to the extent that you could lead somebody to the conclusion that you're an expert at micromuscular facial expressions when that's pseudoscience. There is no universal micromuscular facial expression that always means the same thing. However, this process that I'm working through has worked for every single audience that I've done it for, no matter what, what country I'm in, no matter what continent I'm in, this works. So there are universal principles, but they aren't the ones that everybody thinks are the obvious ones they think understand how this all works. So it's this really weird interplay of stated and actual factual experiential reality is all playing together. And that's what to me is just super fascinating. And I've literally devoted my life to, to thinking about it. And what exactly is communication theory? Understanding that everything that you say, do, how you say it, when you say it, what medium you're saying it through, every single detail communicates some element to the person hearing it. So it's, it's an exploration of how people interact with fundamental reality and then framing everything that you do within that understanding of what's the best way for me to say this so that they'll get what I'm trying to say. Not a lot of people appreciate just how complex communication is. They focus on the words and ignore the medium. And say sending a text message is a lot different than mailing something with a wax seal through FedEx. Right? So the way that you deliver the message is just as important as the content or the words that you use. So it's, it's really a big picture, really, really big picture. And word choice is such a small dimension of what communication is. So what are the other really important aspects? I mean, in terms of communication, I, I think of, you know, like vocal tonality, um, body language, obviously, what you're communicating. Uh, what, are, what are some of the other things that people might not be thinking of? When to say the right detail. 
the right detail provided too early is the wrong detail. What might be an example of that? I love you. <laughs> you might love the. It might be a little early for that, right? <laughs> like, you know it, but wow, that the, you're coming on a little strong there, man. Like, I, I appreciate the interest. However, I don't think we're there yet, right? <laughs> that, that's a, that's a, a blatant example. But yeah, you, you want to skip to the good stuff. You, you want to you share the important thing. If you haven't set the scene properly, if you haven't given somebody enough background to understand what you want to share is and what it means, well, then you can share that detail, but they don't understand the impact that you think it will have for them. So that's, that's why I love the world of magic and mentalism as, as an analogy for communicating effectively, effectively, like a magic effect. Magic effects are written like a recipe. Like if you've never picked up a beginner magic book, like go look at one because it says effect. Like what's, what, what are you claiming to do? So you can say the effect is apparently read somebody's mind and know what card they're thinking of. Then it says method. Well, how do you make that happen? Well, you, you force the card on them and the rest is just presentation. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. And then it spells out, here's the script. And when you say that, do this with the cards, it just spells it out. So when I was a kid, I would read through the recipe for magic. And then I would, I would say it and I would do the right things, but my dad wouldn't be amazed. He'd be like, Hey, I saw you. I saw you flash the, the card there. I like, I, I saw what you did. So I was realizing, well, you can do the right thing, you can say the right thing, but it needs to be done in the right way at the right time. So it all has to be there. Otherwise, there's no effect. So if you're trying to help somebody understand something, or if you're trying to influence them or persuade them, that is your intended effect. Now... Everything that you do, everything that you say, you can reverse engineer to be maximally effective. Then you practice delivering that information in the right way, in the right sequence. And now you're persuasive. So the sequence of, man, I've got so much that I need to talk about. What do I talk about first? Well, I guess to talk about that, I really need to explain this thing first. So understanding the way to architect your arguments or your presentations or your sales conversations, it all depends on who it is you're trying to communicate with, their experience, their framework of understanding, what you're trying to get across, and then designing an experience for them where the logical conclusion is that effect you're trying to create. It is so cool. It's just the coolest thing ever. Hi guys, it's Toby Passman, host of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I hope you guys are enjoying the show today so far. If you're interested in learning to improve your cognition through the use of nutrition, 
supplementation, nootropics, exercise, and sleep, go ahead and check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com and book a free 15-minute neurohealth coaching consultation to see if neurohealth coaching is for you. In neurohealth coaching, we review your current cognitive status and work with you to improve your cognition through the use of the latest research-backed neuroscientific tips and tools. All right, now let's get back to the interview with mentalist Jonathan Pritchard. So tell me about like what a mentalist show of yours, like what, what would that actually look like for an audience? Weird. It looks weird. Um, I, I specialize in kind of higher end shows. So think, think if you would enjoy the opera, you would enjoy my show. This isn't for children. It's, it's not for, for little kids. It's not bright. It's not showy. It's not fast paced. It's very cerebral and kind of looks into the mouth of infinity and goes, yeah, I live way out over there, right? So it kind of brings people up to the edge of what they know is real and then gives them just a little push <laughs> beyond that. So it, it starts, it starts fun, starts fun. It's lighthearted. It's not heavy handed or, or overbearing. So it's, it's light energy, but it starts dealing with really fundamental questions. Like how do we know what's real? How do we connect with another human being? How, what do we value? Why do we value it? So it kind of begins with some demonstrations of chaos and pulling order out of, of entropy. So one thing I like to start with is having a, like a big flip chart or a, a whiteboard on an easel, and then just have people in the audience call out digits, anything, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, any of the 10 digits, don't count, call out like 73, call out seven and three. So just don't be, don't be shy about it. Just call them out. So then as people are calling out digits, I'm writing them on the whiteboard and we just create five, five digit numbers. So that is about as random as random gets all complete strangers that don't know each other. They don't know me. And I have a $10,000 challenge to anybody who can prove that I'm using paid actors or anybody who's just going along with it, right? Like I don't do that, which is the only reason I have that challenge is because I know nobody could take me up on it, right? So it's a whole room full of strangers and they just called out stuff and they watched me write it down on the board. And then I challenged them, take out your cell phone, open it up to the calculator and we're going to have an old-fashioned challenge, my brain against your technology. We're going to add up these numbers, and whoever finishes first wins and has bragging rights. So I am staking my reputation that you've never heard, on, never heard of on this demonstration. So here we go. On your mark, get set, go. So then we, we race, and I, I finish before anybody else in the room using their calculator. And voila, then other people start getting the, the same answer. 
And then as a side note, I always like to explain, and now you guys understand crypto. For those of you who really understand crypto, you appreciate why that's funny because we just did distributed ledger keeping and competitive math. But anyway, moving on. And then I ask everybody, so this, this total, does it look familiar to you? And they're like, no, it's like, it's uh, 210,813 uh, or, or whatever, right? And got the comma there and everything. And then I go, see, the right answer, the right information can be staring you in the face. But if it's not presented in a context that you can appreciate, you can't see it. So let me try this out. And I add just two slashes and suddenly everybody gets it because 21 is the year, 08 is the month, and 13 is the day of the month because this is August 13th, 2021 that we're doing this show or whatever. So those numbers called out at random by strangers create order that when you add it up, equals today's date. And like, that shouldn't happen. That's, that's impossible, but there it is. It's just staring you right in the face. So it's that kind of weird stuff that there's no apparent explanation for. That's, that's where the show starts. <laughs> and then it gets weirder from there. And what's the psychology behind that? Helping them understand that there's no way that could work. So there's a, a concept called the garden path, which is understanding based on the audience, where they're sitting, their experience, these are the things that they're going to think are the explanations for what they're about to experience. So then in my presentation, I need to open up little pathways down the garden path that will lead them astray. So you give them little nuggets that they think they're discovering so that they feel that they're the one who figured this out when really that was the opportunity you're putting in front of them without them realizing that you're the one that's inviting them to go down that path. So now they're on a wild goose chase down the garden path while the real experience is moving forward in real time. By the time that they realize it's a dead end and that couldn't possibly be it, reality has passed them by and now they've got to catch up. There's no way for them to backtrack to then be present for the information that could have explained the physical method of how this whole thing actually happens. So sure. it's, it's a much bigger framework because they're experiencing it within the context of this 70 minute show. But what they're experiencing is 30 years worth of practicing that's unfolding within 70 minutes good luck catching up to that. There's no way, no way that you're coming back from that. So you're basically deliberately kind of leading people's attention and, and 
I don't want to necessarily say manipulate, but influencing where people's attention is going in order to then prevent them from being able to use that same attention to, to be paid to whatever it is that would go into actually figuring out whatever kind of trick you're playing on them. Is that exactly, exactly. In the magic world, that's called misdirection. And a lot of times people conceptualize that as, oh, you've got something tricky you don't want me to see. So you're just going to wave your hand over here to distract me from this thing that I could see and then find you out. And now that's just a big game where I'm competing against your wits. That's a way to appreciate it. The, the way I like to think about it is it's more a direction of attention and understanding what people are interested in. Now, all I have to do is to create an opportunity for their interest to direct them where they want to go. It just so happens to be that that's what I architected for them to experience. So now I'm not trying to shoo them away from anything. It's more like I've designed this whole experience to make this be the most fascinating, interesting thing that you couldn't possibly ignore if you wanted to. And you're going to feel like you're the clever one for figuring it out. So they're going to trust themselves more than anything I say. So I'm going to remove myself from the situation. No, man, you, no, it's all you, man. They're, they're taking ownership of their attention. And that's why it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything. What do you hope that your audience uh, takes away from your shows in terms of what they learn about psychology or communication? Appreciating how much their mind is already doing that they don't understand it's doing. Because most people have a fundamentally flawed understanding of what their mind is, what it does, or what it could do. And if you don't understand that this beautiful thing could be even more amazing easily, then you're going to go through life thinking you're a, a workhorse when you're a thoroughbred that could win the Kentucky Derby, right? So it's the whole goal implicitly and explicitly for the shows is to take an entertainment dynamic that kind of cracks open what they believe their limits to be. Because the entire goal of my show is to highlight my audience members as the stars of the show and to set them up as you're the one that's doing this. I, ultimately, I see myself as a facilitator for those amazing demonstrations that my audience members are doing. That's a fundamental difference than look how clever I am. I'm the smartest person in the room and this is a challenge. So good luck, right? Like that's not all that interesting to me from a theatrical perspective or from a philosophical perspective. So to begin the show with that kind of random number kind of a thing, I want to fulfill their expectations. 
that, you know what, I'm paying good money to come see this guy because he's an expert in world class. And I want him to be that expert and rock star that I, I hope I get to see. So then you, you walk out and you, you check that box. But as soon as you've fulfilled that obligation, then you can do even cooler stuff. Like, what can you do that you're not even aware of? So that's what I want my entertainment audiences to leave thinking is, man, what, what am I wrong about? Like, what if I actually could learn to play banjo or speak Mandarin or do Kung Fu? Like all those weird hobbies I've always wanted to do, but never thought I could do. Maybe it's, maybe I've been holding myself back without any real reason. So the imagined reason and the real reason, there's no difference if it keeps you from doing what you want to be doing. And if I can free people up to at least try it and prove to themselves that they're wrong, I feel like I've, I've made a difference in the world. And as I believe I mentioned in your bio, you run training seminars for Fortune 500 clients specifically to improve their sales and negotiation skills. So tell me about uh, you know, how one of your uh, demonstrations or shows what people are taking away that is improving those sales and negotiation skills. In a way, it's a lot like helping a sales team design their own show. Most people think that an entertainer is a big ego that is feeding on the audience's love and attention to become larger than life, like this big old kaiju or something. They're just like, oh, I'm going to feed on the life energy of my audience. And Okay, there are some people that are like that. And there are a lot of people who enjoy that kind of a thing. If I came to my show with that philosophy that I'm the big deal here, I'm the star, I'm, I'm Mr. Know-it-all, I'm just inviting hecklers because there's going to be somebody in the audience that goes, he's not all that. He's, he's not Mr. Know-it-all. You know what? I'm better than he is. Why is he on stage? And now we're in a battle of wits. A lot of sales teams think that they're the best thing since sliced bread. They're the rock star. They're the hot shot. I'm the guy that keeps the business afloat. I'm the one that bringing in the money. Without me, there's no business. Like, okay, that, that could be the case. But if you bring that energy to your client when they're just a prospect, good luck making your numbers, man. So if you completely change your philosophy of what sales is and your role in the sales conversation from I'm the rock star, look how good I am, to how can I empower you to make your business better? Okay, lead, like you've got problems. You need, you need more leads. You need the phone ringing. And you've been trying for a year and haven't figured it out. Um, so my job is to help you field more phone calls, right? Like that's, that's what you need. And then kind of like, what happens if the phone doesn't start ringing more in six months, your, your business goes under, 
your family is struggling, you can't make payments, like there's some serious stakes involved, right? So my goal is to be a conduit to getting you those, those phone calls. So I understand your problem and the solution is better marketing. And that's why our team has helped people in exactly your situation. So you know what? I'm, I'm your conduit to that success. Through me, you'll get everything you've ever wanted. And by helping him get everything he's ever wanted, then suddenly I'm getting paid my commission, right? So it's, it's really cool, right? To, to help whole teams learn how to be that facilitator rather than the rock star. And, and the fundamental element that drives all of that is trust. Because as a mentalist, I'm a mind reader. Without a mind to read, I don't have a show. If, if I was telling the audience what I was thinking, that's a monologue. That's not a show. I'm working with perfect strangers, people I've never met before. And I'm bringing them up on stage in front of a thousand people, the most terrifying dynamic for everybody on the planet. But that stranger is trusting me enough to willingly step into the number one phobia dynamic. Not only are they willing to do that, they actually have a blast doing it and wind up talking about it for the next 10 years at every family reunion, at every Christmas. Did I tell you about that time I was in that mind reader show? Yes, dad, you did, right? That's brand recognition right there. That's, that's recall. Like, that's why I get paid a lot of money to train people on how to create that. So the science of learning how to get a perfect stranger to trust you in two minutes to now do something that terrifies people is a powerful kind of mojo. So a sales team should be able to create that level of trust and maintain it to deliver world-class results. And what goes into being able to develop that level of trust so quickly? Integrity. And not in the weird abstract way that most people think integrity just kind of means doing the right thing. But it's an absolute unity and alignment of everything that you're thinking, everything that you're saying, and everything that you're doing. They all have to be in perfect alignment. If there's any gap between any of those things, it will come through. Human beings are really good at reading body language, right? It, it, all that kind of communication stuff, they're just not explicitly good. They, they couldn't explain it to you. It's just kind of like a, a hunch. I don't trust that guy. It's because he's thinking, oh man, here comes payday. What kind of package could I get this sucker to sign up for? Hello, Mr. Thomas. I am so happy to be here and I am here to serve you, sucker, right? Like, that all your words can be one thing, but if you're thinking another thing, it's out of alignment. It's not integrated. It is disintegrated. Your, your trust falls apart. 
So it's having absolute confidence in your product, in your services, in your processes, in yourself, in the company, in that you are the best option for that client. If you're not the best option, you shouldn't be closing them. You should be working at a company you believe in. So having that absolute integrity of that alignment of your script, of your actions, of your beliefs, like when I'm in a show, I'm genuinely here going, my goal is to help my audience forget their problems for an hour and question their limits so that maybe they can have a shot at, at being that awesome person they've never believed they could be. I'm not there to, to be Mr. Hollywood or Vegas to, to be the hot shot. It just so happens to be that by empowering my audiences, I happen to get to travel the world and live that awesome life I've always wanted to live. But I don't, it's, it's not because the audience owes me that. If, if I believed my own promo and like, yeah, I'm the hot shot, right? That would come across and be very off-putting. And then suddenly it's all about me, me, me. And now I don't have anything. So it, it's that Zig Ziglar thing, or I think it was him saying, you can have everything in life you've ever wanted if you help enough people get what they want. That really is true. It is really true. No matter, no matter what it is, figure out how to help people solve really big problems and suddenly they're willing to do business with you. Are there ways that we can go about kind of increasing our integrity in terms of, you know, I feel like a lot of, uh, you know, sales or just, you know, trying to convince someone of something. It's like, if you don't fully believe that you're kind of putting together a certain story, which may, you may not be completely uh, genuine or authentic to yourself. Like how, is it just a matter of being 100% honest and truthful or are there any ways that someone could go about making sure that, that they're sticking to, uh, to that integrity? My, my mentor was James Randi. I worked and lived with him very closely for a, a number of years. And there's a documentary about him on Netflix called An Honest Liar. That was his favorite phrase. And he explained it to me. He goes, listen, Jonathan, magicians, mentalists, we are the world's only honest liars. We tell people we're going to lie to them, and then we do. And that's what makes it okay. It would eat him up inside, just make him livid, seeing people lie to steal from people, to defraud them, to create an an understanding of a false reality. So you absolutely have to be the best in the world. You absolutely have to be ultra clear and honest about what somebody's buying. Otherwise, it's fraud. It's theft. Everybody needs all the information they need to make a fully informed decision about what the agreement they're making actually is. If you knowingly withhold information to manipulate their perception of what they think they're getting to your benefit, to me, that's, that's evil. That is fundamental evil. So using these techniques and strategies and principles to steal from people 
is evil. And that's not what I'm about. So it's more about being ruthlessly honest and then not including distracting details in order to help your lead understand why you could help them. One of my other mentors, David Hira, said, listen, when you're on stage, it's you. It doesn't have to be some phony character or some cartoonish version of some idea of something. It can be you. It just has to be the perfect you for that presentation. Verbal fillers, pacing, anything that you do that distracts the audience needs to be cut out completely, ruthlessly. You got to be ruthlessly honest with yourself about whether this is actually serving the audience or not. So that's the filter. Is this helping my client? If not, I need to cut it out immediately. Is this something that they need to know that I need to include it right away? So that's kind of the, the filter of authenticity versus whatever. It's kind of like when you're on stage, when you're doing a presentation, it's you, you're the one doing it, but you don't need to talk about your, your marital problems. You don't need to talk about your gut is upset because you made some bad decisions at the, the buffet, right? Like there's a, there's such thing as too much information, right? So you don't need to be proactively over discussing details that aren't relevant, but to use that as an excuse to withhold important information to create a false understanding, that's, that's not what we're about. And how does this work like translate? I feel like there's gotta be plenty of applications just in terms of sort of interpersonal relationships outside the workplace, whether that be friendships or romantic relationships, like how do you see all of these, all of this stuff coming into play with that? That's a, to me, a really insightful question because I don't see any difference. It's just what's the value being exchanged. Every relationship to be ethical in my book needs to be voluntary. No coercion, no threat of violence, no emotional manipulation or leverage. It's two or more willing people exchanging some sort of value for some sort of value. In business, we call those dollars. In relationships, we call that companionship or, or meaning or, right? In a quote-unquote personal relationship, romantic, the person you fall in love with is the embodiment of your most fundamental values. Whatever you value most, you're going to love the person who embodies that value. And you are willing to exchange time, effort, energy, ideas, conversations, all of your resources in exchange for connection to that value. Still an exchange of value for value. It's just not dollars for time, not dollars for expertise, but it's all still about integrity and connection and human relationships. Is it kind of seeking out other 
people in a way that just confirm our own beliefs in the sense of, you know, you're, you're talking about um, people who share those same values. I mean, is it sort of seeing ourselves in other people? Is that what draws us to them? Or is that not the best way to understand that? To me, that would be a low resolution version of love, which would be a projection framed love. If it's more of a, I see myself in you and I fall in love with you, that's kind of the narcissistic projection love. If it's the, you embody something I don't allow myself to experience myself, then that's a projection. And you're falling in love with that part of yourself you don't feel comfortable admitting or embodying. And it's usually because early on in your life, you learned that that's not a good thing to be doing for whatever reason. So you shove that part of yourself out of how you identify as a human. Then when you see somebody who does embody that aspect of you fully, you're going, oh, wow, they're so amazing. I love them because they are your conduit to experiencing your own self. So in a way, that's kind of like masturbation, one step removed. That to me is not the same as I value freedom. I value reality and an understanding of what reality is and a firm alignment to the law of cause and effect. Every single thing I do creates consequences and to accept full responsibility for my actions and their consequences. Those are my fundamental values. I'm not going to love somebody who blames other people, who's constantly looking for an excuse, somebody who doesn't value life, somebody that doesn't value the time that they've been gifted by this universe that dreamt them up. I'm not going to love that person. They're not in alignment with my fundamental values. So it's more of you tend to want to spend time with people who share your values and can celebrate them together. You're a whole person by yourself, but we are social creatures. So it's more of a co-celebrating of your values and the people who embody and live by those values too that you would choose to spend time with. So that's a lot different than, boy, you're such a good person that I could never be. Oh, I, I need you to feel complete. You complete me. So basically all of the Hollywood versions of love stories are fundamentally evil to me. Interesting. What would you say as far as um, with anything kind of wrapping up our, our discussion today, anything you feel like is important to sort of leave the listeners with? You're not just capable of more than you imagine. You're capable of more than you can imagine. And oftentimes it takes an outside perspective for somebody to question those limits you believe to be real for you to understand that 
it's just a figment of your imagination that's been holding you back. That's a tough, tough spot to be in to realize that you just quote unquote wasted 15 years of your life. But, you know, I'd rather you understand it while you're alive to do something about it before you're just an idea. Do you think that those, those sort of limits, is that something that's instilled upon us like by parents or society or, or is it within that we're somehow at some point deciding that there are those limits that may not actually exist? Yes. I think a lot of it is your, your operating system. I think about a lot of this as an operating system. Most people are daily users. They can hunt and peck on the keyboard to send an email. Most people don't even know what keyboard shortcuts are to the programs that they use all day, every day. Along comes a hacker who can get to the command line. What's a command line? Use the terminal. What? The terminal? What's that? And then get system level access to be an administrator. And then they could write code to create an entire program that could do things that the daily user can't even imagine is possible. I didn't know my computer could do that. So a lot of that operating system is installed through your childhood experience to show you what you believe the law of cause and effect will create. If I'm vulnerable with somebody, they will take advantage of it and hurt me. Therefore, being vulnerable equals pain. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be tough because being honest with people means I'm the one that suffers for it. Okay, I get it. I see how the world works. Then that's how you understand things to work. So you will behave in alignment with that. And those behaviors create those situations that further reinforce the beliefs that created the behaviors that caused the consequences that reinforce the beliefs. It's a feedback loop. So while your early childhood is dictated by your parents and your childhood experience, you're the one that's been living out those programs for decades. So you're the one that's been perpetuating those programs. A lot of the responsibility is on you for running that software. So that's why, yes, some nature, yes, some nurture, but I'm more about taking ownership than I am assigning blame. And in terms of rewriting those programs, I mean, you mentioned having someone on the outside, such as yourself, you know, kind of being able to lead people to that, that sort of uh, message. But I mean, are there other ways such as like travel or psychedelics, other ways that kind of challenge people's values or belief systems that you think are, can be helpful? Absolutely. Um, psychedelics are, are kind of like a sledgehammer. Um, it can be heavy handed. And if all you were looking for was a screwdriver, uh, it, it might be a little more than, than you were looking for. Uh, so I, I don't just freely advise, yeah, sure, do, do shrooms, man. Having done a lot of shrooms myself. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience. So I, I definitely think those have their place, but I don't see them as a catch-all, everybody should do this yesterday kind of advice. Um, travel, no matter where you go, there you are, and you bring yourself there with you. 
And because it's your choices that are creating the consequences, you go somewhere new. And before you know it, the same problems seem to have followed you. Well, the only reason that is, is because you're the one creating your problems. Good luck. So travel is just delaying the inevitable and is a temporary distraction from the real work of understanding, oh, I'm the one that's dreaming up these problems. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's more of, I'm a big fan of the mentor dynamic of having somebody who's living a life that you want to live, make yourself valuable to them and learn everything that they have to teach you. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, this has been a fascinating discussion. I could continue talking with you for hours, but uh, we're coming up onto the end of the show. So if people want to find out more, uh, connect with you or find out more about your work, where would you direct them to? Well, thank you. I really appreciate uh, getting to dig into these ideas. We've gotten to cover some ground I don't normally get to. So I, I really appreciate kind of taking people behind the curtain. Um, so if, if what I'm all about is up your alley or you're interested in it, the actually best place to go is elite.university. That's, that's it. Because I realized that not everybody works at a Fortune 500 company or a large enough corporation to bring me in uh, to train their sales team or their research department to be better communicators. So if you wanted that same level education and, and training, go to elite.university and that's where the courses are. There's a closed community. It's free to join, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, the courses are paid. We've got some free ones too. So that would be the best place to go to get oriented and kind of dip your toe into what's this all about waters. Awesome. Well, yeah, I advise you guys to go check that out. And for those of you who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel or Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. Also, go ahead and subscribe on whatever audio platform that you listen to the podcast on, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or others. We are on basically them all. So, Jonathan, again, I wanted to really thank you for your time today and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. Toby, thank you so much, man. Really, really do appreciate it.